consumer is skeptical. They're not going to rely on any company really to say for themselves, trust us, our product is safe. They wanted a third party mm-hmm. side of it. And that's the, the validity of Okatech. Welcome to On the Mission with Norwex Learning Network. I'm Amy Kadora. I created this show to help raise awareness about issues that can impact our quality of life, including harmful chemicals, plastic pollution, and sustainability. We'll also explore the simple changes that you can make to improve you, your families, and the planet's health. today to be joined by Ben Mead, Managing Director of Hohenstein Institute America. Now, in addition to serving as the company's liaison with government agencies, industry collaborations, and also trade associations, Ben also oversees Oikotech's responsibilities for the U.S. He has extensive experience working with brands and industry leaders in areas like sustainable textile processing, green chemistry, one of my favorites, and developing restricted substances programs. Ben holds degrees in chemistry and textile chemistry from North Carolina State University, and he has a certificate in green chemistry from the University of Washington. Today, he's going to help us dig a little deeper into the standard 100 by Oikotex certification that our microfiber products in our phase one group recently earned after the rigorous and thorough third-party testing done by Hohenstein, one of the member associations of Oikotex. So Ben, really excited to have you on the podcast series. We're excited to have achieved the Oikotex certification and Uh, I know we're getting a lot of positive feedback from our consultants and customers about it. And one of the questions that I know they've put forward and and I've been thinking about too, is that the the testing process is pretty rigorous. And I know that that the team, uh, our R&D team has been working on it for certainly for a little bit. For our listeners, can you give maybe a, um, a a description of the process for testing, because I think it's, it's, um, it's really interesting to hear the process that these products have to go through to achieve the Oikotex certification. Sure. Yeah. So first thing, we're excited that everybody is excited about the certificate. I think it is um, maybe something that everybody's not familiar with in detail. So it kind of sort of understanding uh, is an important place to start. So uh, basically within the standard 100, there's a list of more than 350 chemicals that are uh, built into this list that are maintained that are that, that list grows on an annual basis. And so uh, what we do from a testing standpoint then is really look at each individual type of material, whether it's polyester or if it potentially is made from cotton or if it was even uh, in, in different products where you might have trim accessories made of of metal or even wood or things like that, that material composition really dictates which part of that list of 350 chemicals are relevant to the manufacturing process. And part of that information comes from the level of disclosure that we get uh, through the application. And then there we pare down that list to to test really what's relevant, where do we think um, are potential to be found in the way that we know that polyester is made from a fiber, but also uh, dyed in the coloration process. Right. How long does it take roughly to go through that certification process on average? If somebody calls you and says, hey, let's, we'd like to get it started. How long do you feel like it generally takes to go through it? 
Yeah, certainly the testing part of it itself is, is an important piece. And so testing um, is pretty standard. Once we get to that point, we have a lot of the information. We really know what we're dealing with. And so the testing itself typically takes about two weeks. What is more variable is going backwards, you know, how we can get the information out of uh, the different parts of the supply chain or the manufacturing. And so at least in, in the case of the Norwex products where the factory had a really good grasp on knowing where the materials were coming from, what the inputs that were going into it, uh, that, that sort of sped, sped up the process. Um, so, so typically that takes another two or three weeks to get the application itself completed, uh, provide all those details that we require in terms of understanding the quality assurance plan and really developing the testing plan. So overall about six weeks, maybe. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. And I know that, yeah, it, it was definitely an intensive process for uh, all of the different products, which we're still in the process of. We've got kind of, we call it our phase one products we've pushed through, and now we're going back with our next series of products to get that certification. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I know it's, it's, it's also an intensive process too. You know, one of the things you mentioned was the number of chemicals that you test for. And I'm just curious, chemicals is kind of my thing, uh, harmful chemicals in particular. And I'm just curious, you know, how do you come up with that list of 350? Um, and maybe that even goes back to why and when did Oikotex begin? Like the kind of the, what was the, the mission of saying, hey, we want to make sure that these textiles that are being used by people don't have these harmful chemicals in them. Yeah. So the, the name standard 100, which is the certification that the products hold, uh, comes from the, the sort of foundation of it that when the standard was created in 1992, there were 100 chemicals that were listed in the restrictions. And uh-huh. so over the last 25 years, 27 years now, um, that list continues to grow. And so that's why we don't change the name every year. But right. the, the basis of it is that it was standard 100 because there were about 100 chemicals that were restricted. And so um, the list itself is uh, expanded uh, by the technical teams, by the Okatex teams as they meet and review what's changing in terms of legislation, uh, but also what's changing in terms of our understanding and sort of uh, risk assessment of how how textile products might be made. So every year we're doing tons and tons of testing. And so we're gaining a little bit better perspective and understanding of where we might find things and and what substances of concern are popping up. So interesting. the the main driver uh, does still tend to be legislation globally. So here in the U.S., obviously, there's not a huge amount of of consumer legislation outside of, of children's products. Uh, but globally, that's not always the case. And so we're surveying through the Okatex member associations what's happening from a legislative standpoint all across the globe. And then we're applying that as the strictest standard. And then in some cases, there are substances or chemicals that are on the list that aren't even legislated yet. Or we might have limit values that are a little bit lower than legislation because we feel like that's appropriate to be protective of consumers. Love it. Uh, protect. <laughs> Protect, uh, particularly uh, in the case of really sensitive popul- populations. So, you know, we have some some different levels within the testing program if, if a product is gonna be geared uh, towards babies and really going to be on, on that skin um, real close for, for a lot of time. Right, right. That I, That's, I love that. Do you guys, do you think about the precautionary principle? Is that maybe part of this overall analysis that you're doing? Because uh, I, you know, love the global perspective because, uh, you know, there there are certainly countries that are 
more stringent, uh, more disciplined about you know chemicals and their levels in particular for um, for humans in particular. So um, is precautionary because that's something we use too. We're like, well, there may not be uh, enough regulation or necessarily scientific information. But there's enough that we kind of go, mm, let's not include that ingredient for now in our products. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a, a piece of that that factors in. I think it also is a little bit of a balance because uh, the Okatex uh, Association itself and then the member institutes that are doing the testing are very scientifically based. So um, mm -hmm. we try and balance that precautionary approach with also what's what's realistic in terms of how can we validate that where Okatex doesn't generally take the stance to say we're just going to ban all of these chemicals unless we can um, validate that they're not there through the testing so that's a piece of it so most of the time when you see a restriction what you'll see is a specific list of chemicals that that we would then take in the laboratory and be able to confirm that it's that it's there. So you won't generally see huge broad classes of chemicals that are right. totally banned. You you almost always see a limit value um, at, that can be related to a testing method. Right. And you know what else I love is that you um, Oikotex is looking annually at the list of ingredients and really doing that assessment because that it's so important because we know that more and more are having tests done on them. They're coming out and saying, Hey, you know, maybe they're not at the right, it, the level permitted levels too high, or even getting down to, we're just going to, we're going to pull it out altogether out of the list of approved substances to use. So I love that you guys do that annually. Is that, is that a lot of work for you guys to do on an annual basis to analyze globally what's happening in that, in that chemical area? Yeah, I mean, it's a constant process in terms of evaluating what is the list and, and what makes sense. And then if something's coming on, how can we uh, make sure that the methods that are used are reliable and transferable between mm -hmm. this network of laboratories? Because not only do we have to be able to analyze it consistently in one laboratory, but there are 18 different institutes across the globe that are doing this testing. So we need to be able to know that if the testing is done, um, in Switzerland or it's done in Germany or it's done in France, that those results are, are comparable and the methods are the same and we get similar results. So that's part of the ongoing process alongside developing the list. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, then annually as well, there's some requirements around uh, companies that have certificates that they have to retest, right? Because our basis for doing the testing is really based on samples that we're collecting from the market or that are being sent in by applicants. And so quality is a big piece of that as well. And so that ongoing annual testing really then validates that year after year and production lot after production lot that the, the product can consistently meet the requirements. You know, it just builds so much confidence from a consumer standpoint to know that information is essentially standing behind that label on their textiles. And, and honestly, I don't think most people know, certainly not here in the U.S., know what that Oikotex stands for. So that's that's pretty exciting. I love knowing that. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that label in a whole new light now when I see it. Sure. Um, what you know, I don't know how many companies put forward their products for certification. And maybe how many do do that? Maybe on an annual. Do you know how many do that on an annual basis? Yeah. So I think the latest I've seen there's about fifteen thousand companies that are engaged in. Uh, the Okatex certification process. And so um, that really then translates into um, 
a much larger number of certificates and an even much larger number than that uh, number of products in the market. Because even in the case of the Norwex certificate, right, there is one certificate that exists for these products, but it could be multiple different styles and multiple different um, actual products that are covered under that single certificate. And, and what that means is that under a single certificate, each of those component materials for each of those products has to be qualified. But there's not a requirement that you have to have a separate piece of paper for every single product. Got it. So I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, like this is one of our Norwex products. So it's actually the mask bag. And so when when we're saying this is certified, we're saying that the label has been certified. Is that right? Correct. So if you're going to say any product is certified, every component material in it needs to be covered. So in that bag, if you're going to certify that, the the uh, fabric for the, the handle there would need to be certified, the right. main body fabric, the zipper, the label, even the stitching thread that's holding it all together would go through the certification process. So even though we think in some of those cases, it's unlikely that you or I are using it, that we're really gonna get a huge exposure to any of those things, it's still important for Okatex to know that every component could be used, um, especially because it, if we're looking at it from a material standpoint, we don't know exactly uh, how that's going to be used in a finished product. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that is incredibly thorough, I have to say. <laughs> so when, um, when you're looking at these textiles, have you seen any exceptional advancements in them in recent years in terms of being able to avoid harmful chemicals? Is there anything that stands out in your mind from... I don't know, something that's been developed that you're like, that's a, that was a great step for us as an organization through the process. I don't. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are, if we go back to, to 1992, when the standard was created, there were, you know, this core set of substances that were on there that were really high profile in terms of concern. Um, some of the azo dyes, some things around formaldehyde, things like that, um, right. that have been restricted Biocatex for a long time. And so certainly as those continue to be on there and companies continue to work towards certification, they're going out and finding alternatives. So things that we would have seen lots of failures for back in 1992, uh, we tend to see a decrease in those failures and we start to see um, you know, more failures for things that are brought onto the list, either by legislation or by our own, because it's just not something that's been communicated to manufacturers that, hey, we need to find an alternative out of it. Right. Because it's not like mm -hmm. in most of these cases that they're putting formaldehyde on directly. Right. It's part of some sort of formulation that provides a functional finish. So right. um, in some cases, right. you don't even know it's in that formula. Right. So finding uh, finding out that it's there through the testing of the textile then leads them to the corrective action to go back and find what's an alternative, which typically means talk to their chemical supplier and say, hey, this is our requirement now. How do, right. how do we find something that will give us the same performance? Uh, but won't contain this, this, and this. Right. I love that it's almost as though it's a catalyst, if you will, to to instigating change within the suppliers, within the manufacturers, within the the retailers as well. So that mm -hmm. that's that's pretty powerful that you guys have been able to to you know from your position be that 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 catalyst to for change to get these harmful chemicals in, out of a place that most people don't even think about. You're not even thinking about chemicals in your textiles, right? You really aren't. Right. So I love that. 
Um, you know, I was also thinking about, you know, you're talking about ingredients that are not intentionally added into the process. And we, we also test our finished products. Um, we have personal care and household products. We do the exact same thing. We test the finished products to ensure that within the formulation itself, when everything's been mixed together, even though it's clean, that there's nothing that's happened, no interactions that have happened to produce an impurity that might have an issue in the formula for us. So doing the same sort of thing. Now, what are the most common chemicals that you're testing for or that you're even that you're finding? Let's, let's say even now, you know, you're talking about as you're changing for next year, the list from 350 to 360 harmful chemicals. Are there chemicals of concern that you guys are watching closely and saying mm, these are going to be included maybe in the next couple of years? I don't know what the time frame is for including them and then testing, giving notice notification to the people that have these certifications to say, Hey, heads up, we're going to be testing for this. So get started and, yeah. and, and moving it out of your, your supply chain. Yeah. I would say the biggest, uh, the biggest sort of mover in this whole area is around fluorinated chemistry. So things that are used in water repellent type technologies and sort mm -hmm. of other, you know, stain release, stain blocking technologies. Um, so that's an area where we see a lot of legislation even uh, coming out of REACH legislation in Europe. Uh, yep. Even just this year in 2020, sort of mid-year, the legislation changed and that forced Okatex to provide an, an interim update so that products would start being tested against these, these new changes. So we see uh, even though that category of chemicals and the list of individual substances is, has been in existence for a while, that's one where we see it growing because there's a lot of push from the industry to move away from uh, fluorinated chemistry to some sort of other, just because of um, uh, health concerns, but also persistence in the environment. So it's right. even though the the restriction is really about uh, product safety, it, it, there is a component of it that is about in the environmental concern of what's happening while it's made and making sure that okay, if it's made in a facility where appropriate wastewater treatment is in place, that those those chemistries are not going to somehow make their way through and uh, be persistent in the environment. So the approach being that from a design or manufacturing standpoint, if we can reduce them and eliminate them by saying we don't want them on a finished product, um, that's an approach that sometimes is applied. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about these persistent, you know, organic compounds that um, last forever and, and talking with it with our customers, because you, you just don't understand that some of these things that we think are safe they stay around for decades, right, in the environment. And frankly, possibly in your body as well over those long periods of time, because your body can't really process it. So having to have a, a really good eye on those persistent compounds and trying to minimize as much as we can our exposure to it is key for us too. So here's, this is kind of a fun one, but what, what country it, from your perspective, has the best standards in place, like the most stringent standards for textiles? Yeah. Or, or is there one? I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a, maybe it's a grouping of them. Yeah. I mean, as a collective, it's pretty straightforward that it's the European countries. Now, for the yeah. most part, they're relying on um, essentially the, the European community directives and those, that, that legislation. Now you do see some um, individual countries that have uh, you know, particular additional chemicals that they restrict. Um, we see sometimes in some cases, uh, some restrictions out of Japan that tends to be particularly, you know, strong in legislation. Uh, but those are definitely the two areas where we see the most. And so they're the ones that we're continue to monitor what's going on. 
Definitely. Definitely. Do you have any, like, as you guys are looking at these, um, at these harmful chemicals, are, are there any health issues that you're, you're most aware of that can result from chemicals in textiles? And one area that uh, I'm thinking that we spend a lot of research on is the endocrine disrupting chemicals. So those that are really impacting the hormone system, we, we definitely look at carcinogens, but we're also spending a lot of time looking at the EDCs um, because there, there's this ongoing education, I think, and increasing awareness for customers that the endocrine system um, is, is, is incredibly, uh, it's more than just reproduction when we think about hormones, right? Much more than that. It, it, it has such an impact throughout the body. And we're, we're talking more and more with our customers about do what you can to reduce the, these, these chemicals that have the potential to be EDCs is, are, are those some of the common health issues that you think result from textiles? Because again, I don't think people recognize that there is the potential in a textile or in, a, in in clothing that you may be wearing for those chemicals to come in contact with your with your skin, with your body, and potentially have an impact longer term. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is a big question overall yeah. because the the uh, exposure route and the exposure scenario is very different from a cosmetic that I know I'm directly applying to my skin or for food that I'm you know putting in directly. And so I think that's where consumers do connect more immediately in terms of looking at it. But I think, um, you know, just thinking about the fact that really our skin itself is, you know, the biggest organ that we have. Um, so we certainly do have quite a bit of exposure in terms of contact and surface area. So uh, for sure, endocrine, endocrine disruptors are a piece of that, and, you know, something that could trigger a substance both for legislation and then to be included in the list. Uh, carcinogenicity as well. I mean, both of those have a tendency to be more of a longer term exposure. So you're just, you're trying to limit across the board overall exposure from our big picture. Um, so right. more or less from the textile, even though that might not be your biggest exposure route, um, that we want to try and limit that as, as right. much as possible. Um, the other piece from the textile standpoint, because we have a lot of wearing textiles as well, um, it would be irritation and, and sensitization and, and things like that because of sort of growing uh, knowledge, I, I guess, around, you know, we know how all of these substances uh, affect or what the hazards might be individually, but there's there's not as much known about the cumulative effect of all of these as well. Well, you're speaking my language because we often talk about this cocktail of chemicals, right? We, we may have research on one or two or three, but we absolutely don't have research on what happens when you mix them into a cocktail and you're putting them on your body. You're either, you know, in personal care, you're putting them on once or twice a day. Um, and what's that cu cumulative effect over time, right? And we just don't have any data on that. We, we, we really, we don't have any data on what happens within our bodies. And then back to, you know, <laughs> we, we talk a lot about Dr. Bruce Lanfear, who um, actually did a video that he titled Little Things Matter. And in that video, he really does a great job of showing us that, uh, it is the accumulation over time of each of these little, you think they're tiny, you know, parts per million or even parts per billion. But when you have a lot of them over time, that absolutely has an impact on the body and on our human health. So totally agree with you there. Yeah. And that's one of the things we sometimes get a question, you know, you've got 350 substances, you've got, you know, maybe in a particular uh, textile that's tested, you've got 
150 of them that are tested. Oh, we passed 149 of them. We just failed on this one little one. Can't we pass? And the answer from Okatex is pretty easy. No, you have to pass them all. Right. right. There's no exception. And there's no weighting that says, you know, this one substance is less important than the other, or that this little component, you know, that stitching thread, oh, come on, it's not going to touch my skin, is, should be exempted from that product. No, the rules of standard 100 are pretty clear. It has to pass every substance and it has to be every component of every, of every product. Wow, I really, really love that. It's like you draw the line in the sand. You're like, nope, we, this is black and white. You know, there's not a gray area here when it comes to this certification. You either have it or you don't have it and you need to work towards it. Right. Awesome. You know, it's funny because we think that you know, Oikotex, this happened overnight, but I bet it was a, historically, I bet it was a, a tough road initially, you know, to wrangle, to come up with a concept, to wrangle these companies together, to set up the testing facilities globally, and, and literally put all the pieces of this puzzle together. So it's, Oikotex started in 92? Yeah, so the real driver was some legislation that was coming in Germany, and um, to basically say that azo dyes, formaldehyde, heavy metals, some of these things that were known to be used in, historically known to be used in textile manufacturing were being legislated. And so actually the manufacturers in the industry came to Hohenstein and they came to a lab in Austria um, and said, hey, we, we need a system. You know, we're confident that our product meets this because we've been aware of these hazards. I mean, the, the chemical industry comes from Germany, right? So the the uh, we're confident that our product can meet this. So we want to be able to, to sort of set ourselves aside, set ourselves out of this conversation that's happening that textiles all of a sudden are unsafe. And so we, we need uh, a reliable third party mechanism to do the testing. And more importantly, to have a consumer label, you know, right. because the consumer is skeptical. They don't, they're not going to rely on uh, any company really to say for themselves, trust us, our product is safe. They wanted a third party mm -hmm. side of it. And that's the, the validity of Okatex. And so um, for the broader industry, yes, I would say it's been a long journey to kind of pull everybody in, but a certain segment really is what drove it and asked for it. So um, in that side of it, they were looking at a way to protect the textile manufacturing and the textile industry that was still happening in Germany as they were competing a little bit with the the international market that was developing because of, of trade and tariff. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting, you know, to take a little bit of an angle there and say, you know, you had a few voices, right. That were, it, it's, it's that idea of um, uh, a rising tide raises all ships, right? So you had a few companies that wanted to create this, a few voices out there, and they really led the pack. It sounds like to, you know, kind of, force the industry in some ways um, to take notice and say, hey, maybe we all should be doing this sort of certification. And still today, the standard itself is voluntary. So right. um, we, we don't, it's not like you see 50% of the people that are applying for certification are failing. The list of substances is, is publicly available. The approach to a certain extent is publicly available. And so um, the intent would be that if a, if a company comes and wants to be certified, that they at least should have some background knowledge. Otherwise right. it creates a little bit of doubt that, okay, is this a golden sample or is this something that could be, um, that is going to pass this testing, but it's not going to be representative of something in the future. And so that's why some of the checks and balances within Okatex exist in terms of evaluation of a quality management system and then on ongoing spot checking from the market. So mm -hmm. uh, essentially like the products that, that you're selling 
Okatex could be buying and pulling and sending for testing and spot checking. And if it passes, great. If it fails, then somebody's getting a communication saying, hey, you have a certificate, you're labeling the product is certified, but it's not continuing to meet the requirements. So, you know, what's the problem? What right. what's the change? What are we going to do about this? And that happens internally as well, because Norwex is relying on suppliers of raw materials. And so when Norwex applies for its certificate, any of those pre-certified materials coming in also get spot check tested. Now, Norwex doesn't pay wow. for that. Um, it's built into the cost of the certification, but we, we would pull that stitching thread that maybe is bought, being bought from a, a pre-certified supplier, send it for testing because we got it as part of your submission. And that confirms ongoing that their product still meets. It's just so incredibly thorough. I absolutely love it. Like it, and what I I love the ongoingness of it. That it's not just a one-off. You test and pass. But look, this needs to be. It needs to be a continual process that we're going through. Sure. I love that. Well, Ben, I so appreciate you coming on this morning and sharing a little bit more with us. Um, would you be willing to come on again if we get? I bet we're going to get some questions from our customers, and would love to maybe have you come on again. Sure. And, and Happy to build this. Awesome. Thank you so much again. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share with friends and family and don't forget to follow and subscribe. 